I absolutely love that video. I think it does a great job of painting the picture of what this new series is all about. That power, sacrifice can be painful. Certainly you probably experienced that making a sacrifice yourself. And then when we contemplate all that Jesus sacrificed for us, it, it's easy to get lost in the pain of all of that. If you've, um, if you've watched some of the movies recently that are, that are out there about Jesus' life and death and suffering, you've seen some really agonizing scenes in those movies. Um, and so there's no doubt that Jesus' sacrifice for us was great and it was painful. But what I love about this video is that it really focuses on the now and the end result of Jesus' sacrifice is that it's completely life-changing for you and me. Completely transformative. And as the video showed so well, things that we struggle with, pain, suffering, a lack of self-confidence, worry, whatever it might be, all of those can be transformed through the power of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And most of all, of course, we go from being guilty before God to innocent. We go from being condemned before God to having the promise of everlasting life. And that is the most amazing blessing and transformation of all. And so this morning, we're going to dive into the first message in the power of sacrifice, and we'll be talking about God's purpose. Where I'd like to begin is just by diving right into our verses for this morning. And just to introduce them very briefly, these words are written by a prophet of the Old Testament time named Isaiah. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And so everything you're going to hear here, think of it in that framework, that these are words as, as specific as they are about who Jesus is. They almost sound as if it's someone standing at the foot of the cross writing, but it was written 700 years before the cross ever happened. And here Isaiah explains why. What was the purpose of all of that suffering that Jesus did for us? And Isaiah was living in a difficult time. I think it's also important for you to know that. That as, as Isaiah writes these words about a Messiah who will one day come for the sins of the world, he's writing in a very difficult spiritual time for God's Old Testament people because they have been rebellious. It was 300 years earlier when David was king. And if you read through all the events of what happened after David is no longer king, you know what you're going to hear? One story, one king, a series of prophets and people that are in constant rebellion against this God who has given them this, this beautiful place to live, a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and gave that to them to be a place where they could freely worship their God. And instead of freely worshiping their God, they use God's grace as well, really as a license to worship all kinds of other gods, to worship themselves, to pursue wealth, 
to pursue sex, to pursue power. They use God's grace as a license to do all those things instead of making God, this God who's been so gracious to them, the very heart and center of their lives. Now along comes Isaiah after 300 years of generation after generation of this kind of rebellion. And he gives them this amazing set of words that I'm about to read to you. So listen, Isaiah 53, these, are, these words are also in your program and they'll be on the screen. Who has believed our message? Kind of saying, who can even believe this? Who, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And by the way, don't let the past tenses here fool you. This is prophecy. So it sounds like he's writing about something in the past, but he's not. He's writing about someone and something that is 700 years in the future. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. In other words, we've all been rebellious. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth his mouth. So here's where I want to start, because those are obviously very serious words, but I, I want to take you to a, another place that maybe you've been to. How many of you have been to Disney World in Florida? Okay. And so if you've been there, you probably heard that beneath Disney World, what's beneath Disney World? All these like secret Disney tunnels that you can only go in if you're uh, an, an employee of, of Disney, a character, as they will call you. And, but in these tunnels, you get to see the inner workings of what goes on at Disney World. And apparently, it's an amazing place. I've never been. But I love this thought that there's kind of like this below the surface, there's a, a, a number of operations and things that are going on that most of us in the vast public, we don't know about. But it's what makes the magic happen in the magic kingdom. Did you know that there are tunnels at Amazing Well? And I, I did this because, no, they're not under here. You're not 
sitting on top of tunnels, but we have tunnels in this sense at Amazing Love that there are things that kind of are background programs that run that define the way we do things here at Amazing Love that maybe you've never heard about. And I was thinking about this because of a conversation that I had earlier in the week uh, about things that determine, for example, you know, we have these sermon series that we move from one to the other to the other. What's in the tunnels of these sermon series? Or of our worship services? Because around the, the message series, Courtney plans our music. And how does that all get started? Well, what many of you probably don't know that one of the operating principles kind of lying underneath here at Amazing Love is that we are trying to marry what's contemporary, which you can probably see pretty much on the service, on the surface by our music, to what's traditional, because traditional is time-tested, and it's been used by Christians for centuries, and so much of what's traditional is not bad. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater just to be with it and contemporary. And so I'm going to take you a little journey into the tunnels today about how we get our sermon series that you may never have realized, but how we get our sermon series is far more traditional than you probably have been led to think. So I'm gonna put up a slide. Has anyone ever heard of the traditional church here? Okay, I see some of you. If you've come out of a traditional church, you've probably heard there's such a thing as a traditional church here. And there it is in simple form. Okay, and you have two halves of the year one half, you tend to focus on the story of Jesus. That's where we are right now. If you go up to the upper right, where it says crucifixion and the purple Lent, we just came out of Epiphany, and you can see that March is the season of Lent. We're talking about the story of Jesus. Just think about what you just heard, right? It's a prophecy about who? Jesus, okay? And then along around the end of May, getting into June, we go into what's called the ordinary time, and, and that's the not, the reason it's called ordinary, it's the non-festival part of the year. Up top are all the festivals, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. Those are all the big church festivals, and then in the bottom half, you have what we call the ordinary part of the year, which is those, that, that preaching is typically just to lead you through the Christian life. The story of the people of God. So it, it points more to you, whereas the festival half of the year points more to Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, now that you know that, that's like you're down in the tunnels pretty deep right now. Did you know that? Okay. Did you know that most of our series are planned with that in mind? They are. In your head, if you were to go back to November, December, you'd recall that we had a series, and the title of it was Generous. Why generous? 
because that part of the year, the last part of ordinary where November is, what is that? Thanksgiving, right? And it's where even the whole world, well, not the whole world, but all of America celebrates U.S. Thanksgiving, and so do we in the church, and God's generosity stands forth, and then our response of generosity in return. So that's where we started, and then Advent, do you remember our Advent series? You didn't know it was an Advent series. Courtney remembers, because she has to plan all the worship. It was called the Songs of Christmas. What a great one for our music. The Songs of Christmas, right? And then, and then we got, we celebrated Christmas. We got into Epiphany. Now, here's where we tweaked it a little bit, to be maybe a little bit more contemporary than traditional. In January, uh, we had a series about the new year and the new you. That's more of a secular calendar thing than it is necessarily a church calendar thing. So we had a series about um, God's mercies are new. And then, and then we actually did just finish our Epiphany series, The Quest for Peace. And you know what Epiphany is about? Like the central story of Epiphany, anyone know? The wise men coming for Jesus. And what were the wise men doing? The wise men were seeking Jesus, but what, were they see what was the question behind the question? Not just how can we find Jesus, how can we find our Messiah? How can we find forgiveness? And how can we find peace through knowing Jesus? And so we have this series called The Quest For, because the quest for peace, because that's what the wise men were looking for. Now, you didn't know any of that, did you? See how kind of cool it is to be in the tunnels? And so now... What's our season? I pointed it out. We're in the season of Lent. We're still talking about Jesus. And what's our series? Quite naturally, in the season of Lent, the power of sacrifice. And I, after I had this conversation this week, I thought, you know, we need to take the people down into the tunnels a little bit so they can see that there's actually a very traditional pattern that we're following here, but we don't talk about it much. And every now and then, I think it's good to take a tour of the tunnels and understand, yes, on, on the surface up here in Disney World, I should call it Amazing Love World, it appears that we're a very contemporary church and we kind of just do whatever feels good in the moment. And that's not the case. We want you to be led through the story of Jesus year. And that pattern's going to, next year, watch for it. Because we'll go through it all again. In fact, for the remainder of this year, we'll go through it all again. And then we'll go in the ordinary season, and the festivals won't be as upfront because that's the non-festival part of the year. But when Pastor Dustin and I plan, <laughs> he does the main part of it, but when we plan our message series, that graphic is firmly planted in our head, showing you that behind the scenes, we are probably far more traditional than you ever realized. Because there's power in sacrifice, there's also power in the time-tested traditions of God's people. 
So with that little introduction, that's, let's come back out of the tunnels. But the last question I want to ask and jump into is what is this season of Lent really about? So can you write that down? And, and there, you probably have ideas what Lent is all about. You've probably heard things about what this season is all about. And certainly, um, depending on what your tradition as a church member is, um, you, you may have even been taught certain things about Lent. Let's uh, put the next slide up. Here's an explanation from a website I, I actually love. It's a great website. If you ever want to uh, look at it, it's called gotquestions.org. But... Here's a, here's a definition. Lent is a period of fasting, moderation, and self-denial traditionally observed by Catholics and some Protestant denominations. It begins with Ash Wednesday and ends with Easter Sunday. Now, what I want to point especially is a period of fasting. How many of us are fasting right now for Lent? Okay, some of you are. Moderation, meaning you're dialing some stuff back. You might be doing that. And self-denial, traditionally observed by Catholics and some Protestant denominations, as you just saw, by us. Now that's, that's a pretty solid definition. You're going to find a lot of pretty solid stuff on uh, Got Questions. But it's not the one I prefer. Because I think Lent is about something much deeper than that. And so as I was casting around looking for what are, what are we doing here during Lent, I found this, and I, I really like it. Lent, a season of reflection. Remember how I said before, this is a time to get up on the balcony of your life, particularly spiritually, and kind of evaluate things. How am I doing in my relationship with God? We rush through life, don't we? Is, is it just me? Where we are so busy. We're busy at work. And in most jobs now, because they can't find enough employees, if you're working, uh, you're going to be given 1.5 to 2 times your normal load just because they got no one else. Then you're going to come home and there's meals to cook and clothes to wash and children to raise. And then you're maybe trying to have a little fun once in a while, so your weekend comes and you're, instead of like taking time to reflect, you're on to, there's too much fun right now, and uh, I mean, why do I work all week long and do all this stuff other than kind of to be able to enjoy my weekend a little bit? Unless you're parents of like three or four children, and then you're just running around to all their games. Right? When do you get time to reflect? And if your answer is never, as mine has been sometimes in the past, can I encourage you to get up on the balcony of your spiritual life and maybe do one of these? And if you can find five minutes to do that, like, that's a big improvement over nothing. Use this season of Lent to develop a habit of reflection 
It is amazing what can happen upon reflection. Part of this sermon that I'm preaching to you today got written last night, not sitting in front of my computer, but out on a walk. Because as I'm walking, I have time to think. When I'm sitting in front of my computer, I'm like, got to get this done, got to get this done, got to get this done. I'm preaching this tomorrow. And then when I go out for a walk, it's like my brain slows down. Can I encourage you? Use Lent as a season of reflection. Renewal. These weeks of Lent are a time to say, what needs to change? What is the old that needs to go out the door? And I'm not, I'm not talking about like stuff in your house, although you can do that too if you want to do your spring cleaning now. You can do that. But I'm talking about stuff in your heart, not your house. What during this time of year could be sacrificed, since we're talking about sacrifice? What, what could be given out because, you know, if you're going to put new stuff in, unless you're a hoarder, spiritually, like, it just piles up unless you shovel some stuff out. So what is it? What is it, upon reflection, you could ask yourself that needs to get shoveled out of my heart? Because it's not helpful, and it's not healthy. It's not spiritual. It contributes nothing to my relationship with Jesus, my Savior. It's just sitting there taking up space, or worse, tempting me to do things that aren't supported by my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I need to get it out of my heart and out of my life. What is that? And then, well, that was renewal, and then there's preparation. What are we preparing for? Anybody want to guess? Anybody, like, not so shy that you wouldn't be willing to guess what we're preparing for? I mean, I could use your help. It's not hard. What comes after Lent? Good Friday? Easter. Easter. Lent is the time that we're preparing for the great victory. Isn't that beautiful? Now, Lent, to many people, is a season of sadness, but we should never lose sight that at the, at the end of this season of repentance and change and reflection and renewal comes what? The great victory. The big win. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The stone rolled back. Jesus walking out. Satan defeated. Death defeated. Our sins Defeated and gone, vanquished. So while we're taking this time, this season, to reflect and renew, we're also taking time to say, it's coming. I can't wait. I'm excited. This is so important to me. Easter is coming. And so that's why I love this slide, because I think that's really what Lent is all about. And let's go back to Isaiah, because that's what he says it's about. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
This is Isaiah, as I said a moment ago, saying, can you even wrap your arms around this? What Jesus did for us. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And if you haven't gotten it yet, the he here is Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground, like he's a tender shoot. For growth group people, I'm going to ask you, what was God's strategy in all of this as you go to your groups later on in the week? Like, what? Jesus, the Son of God, comes like a tender shoot, meaning like a little sprout growing out of the ground that would be easily stomped on? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You may have noticed in the Gospels how people are going, this ain't the guy. Because for one thing, the guy would be way more handsome than this guy is. He would look way more powerful than this guy does. He would seem to have some authority that this guy apparently doesn't have, although when they start to hear his teaching, then they kind of get amazed about the authority of his teaching, don't they? But on face value, nothing that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, 700 years before Jesus is even born, those words about him in such specific detail were written by this prophet named Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you ask, like, how did he know that? Well, this is how we know that this book and the authors of it didn't write stuff out of their own heads. They make this stuff up. They, who could have made that up? You want proof that the Bible is real? Start looking at these claims that these guys wrote this very specific stuff about Jesus 700 years before he stepped onto the earth. Like, how does that happen unless supernaturally? Unless the Holy Spirit kicks it into gear and inspires these words to be written by Isaiah. And how accurate were they? I mean, down to the detail. Let me show you Matthew 27. This is Matthew 27. Remember how it says he didn't open his mouth in Isaiah? Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, can you read that with me? He gave no answer. And we read on. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Not even to a single charge, the great amazement of the governor. Is that not, like, miraculous? How does that happen? It happens because God is involved. And do you know that amazing things happen because Jesus sacrificed himself for you still today. Amazing things will happen in you. 
as you follow Jesus. So stick with him. Here's what I want you to write down. Lent is about repentance, that is rethinking our lives, and self-sacrifice, true. But I'm going to add to that because many of us think it's about our self-sacrifice, when as Isaiah says, really it's far more about Christ's self-sacrifice than ours. Okay, here's another question. What's so important about Jesus? Why is he, why is Jesus the focus in the season of Lent? Okay, I'm going to paint this very, like, specifically for you. I'm going to put some names up, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to see if anyone can guess what these names have in common. How many of you are fans of an NBA team? Any, anybody in here? If you're not, this might be a little hard. Okay, we've got some NBA people in here. All right, if you're a Chicago Bulls fan, you might get this because I'm going to put a Chicago Bulls name on there. Let's put those names up. And the question is, what do they have in common? Dan Marley of the Phoenix Suns, Jason Terry of the Dallas Mavericks, Ricky Pierce of the Milwaukee Bucks, Bill Walton playing for the Boston Celtics, Lamar Odom playing for the LA Lakers, John Havlicek playing for the Celtics, James Harden playing for the Thunder, and because we're in Chicago, Tony Kukoc of the Chicago Bulls. Does anybody know something about any of those players? And they all have the same thing in common? They are on the list of the greatest sixth men of all time. Every one of these. Now, what's a sixth man? How many players do you traditionally have on a basketball team? on the court at one time. Now you might have 15 basketball players on the team, but five on the court at a time. So what's the sixth man? The first guy off the bench or the first substitute. And what these guys have in common on this list of the greatest six men of all time is that every one of them were game-changing substitutes, not starters substitutes. How important is this concept of a substitute? Well, think about the fight between David and Goliath. You know what both of those were? They were substitutes. David substituted for the entire nation of Israel. Goliath substituted for the entire nation of the Philistines. Whatever happened between those two substitutes, that was good for the entire nation. When David won, Israel won, because he was their substitute. All right? Now, I want you to, um, to look at this. Here's a quote, a couple quotes. John Stock, Christian pastor, the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, isn't it? Why should I listen to God? That's Garden of Eden stuff. Eve, why are you listening to God? You should listen to yourself and do what you want. 
That's the essence of sin. While the essence of salvation is what? God substituting himself for us. That's it. Here's another one. Guy from a previous age, but he says it so beautifully. Maybe you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. Again, another Christian pastor. He calls it the heart of the gospel, this idea of substitution. The heart, the core, the central message of the gospel is substitution. The heart of the gospel is redemption, and the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel in whatever else they may be mistaken, but they who preach not the atonement and the substitutionary sacrifice, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. Jesus is your substance. He died in your place. He lived a perfect holy life in your place. You get his report card before God. You are as perfect as, and holy today before God in his sight as Jesus was because Jesus is your substitute. Look at how Isaiah says it. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he took up whose pain? Not his own. Our pain. And bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He subbed himself in. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We get healed because he substituted himself for us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's your substitute. That's why you don't have to worry about your sins anymore. Because Jesus already paid the price. That's why you don't have to worry about, am I right enough before God? Am I holy enough? Because Jesus is your holiness and your righteousness. Write this down. Why is Jesus the focus in the season of Lent? Because Jesus is the most important substitute ever. What's your next step? Because I got to wrap up. And late. Remember, I always get excited on the first message of a new series. Why I have Dustin preach the first message. But let's wrap it up. Here's your next step. I will ponder the big why behind Jesus' costly sacrifice for me. And I hope you learned what the big why is. Because God loves you immensely. And he wants you in his arms. You know, even men can do this. Guys, I, I know, like, this might seem a little girly. It's not. Like, when my guy friends come to church, you know, a lot of them, I'm like, Hey, it's a man hug. Guys, if, if you're feeling a little squeamish about God wants you in his arm, think of it as God's man hug, okay? Patting you on the shoulder and saying, I want you right here with me, side by side, because I love you and I'm here to help you. Never forget, I substituted myself and gave my life for you. Let's, with that, 
confess our Christian faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.